And so there came a point in our evolution when we didn't guide life by distrusting our instincts and had to think about it and had to purposely arrange and discipline and push our lives around in accordance with foresight and words. Hello everyone, it's Megan. Hello, and this is Kaylee. And this is Soul Sutras, where we talk with folks about the gritty and mystical threads that challenge, awaken, and ultimately compel them to learn just what it is they stand for. Sutra is a word in Sanskrit that means thread or a line that holds something together. We talk with interesting guests who are willing to look at their life and the threads that have woven throughout it, leading them closer and closer to their personal truth. Today we have the pleasure of talking with Jaisal Parikh, a yoga teacher in New York City. We are going to delve into both the gritty and mystical sutras or threads that have evolved her life, specifically with her relationship to, well, relationship. Nobody stays the same after they get married. You're constantly changing and evolving as people. And the reason you get married is because you need someone there, or most people need someone there to help them in that journey of change. Jaisal is going to chat with us today about the yoga of partnership and what that means to her. She'll share moments and insights from her journey as a single millennial yoga teacher in New York City to her decision to marry the love of her life and what the heck yoga has to do with it all. So thank you, Jaisal, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into the content of what you want to talk about, I just want to check in with you and, and ask, um, authenticity is a word that we throw around a lot here. What does authenticity mean to you? I think it means just being true to yourself and what you know in your own experience. So a lot of times I think people sometimes step out of the box of what they have direct experience with. Um, and I think authenticity means staying within that box of what you have direct experience in. Awesome. So like always kind of checking in um, internally and just kind of aligning what's happening with your own vocabulary, your own way of looking at the world, your own experiential understanding of things. Yeah. It's never taking someone else's word for it. Just kind of like, you know, checking in with your own experience. Do you resonate with the word soul? And um, if so, what does it mean to you? I absolutely do resonate with the word soul. I think you know, I, I think a lot of people use the term sort of, you know, soul sisters or whatever to mean kind of like a, people that are alike. But to me, the soul um, signifies that thing, that spark inside of us, whatever that is, be, that's the difference between life and death, to be honest. So um, while I'm not a religious person, I do believe like that there's a difference between a, a live body and one that's not alive. And that difference is the soul. So it's kind of like that animating yeah. Aspect of life. Right. Awesome. And do you believe that the soul has a purpose? Um, I do. I believe that the soul's purpose is to sort of just evolve and get closer to its source uh, as close as it can get during a lifetime. 
And did your yoga practice um, influence that understanding and that perspective on the world? Or is that something that you kind of feel like you've always held within inherently? Interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I'll I'll talk about it a little bit. So I grew up in a Hindu household. So when I was young, I was very religious. And, you know, the idea of reincarnation was sort of um, planted when I was very young. And then I kind of went through this phase where I didn't know what I believed. And I wasn't even sure if I believed in God. And I sort of revisited that through yoga. And of course, the paradigm exists in yoga too of reincarnation. And so I, I sort of gravitate towards that. I don't, I'm not sure that that's what exactly what's out there, but that's a paradigm I tend to gravitate towards and believe in. The, the idea of the soul, I guess, is sort of implanted in that where uh, everyone has a soul and it joins back to the source, if you will, or, you know, in Hinduism, they call it Atman. Mm-hmm back to God, however you want to call it, back to the universe. So I would say that it's not religious for me anymore, but yes, yoga definitely informed that idea for me. And that's the way in which I'm spiritual. I do believe that there's a soul. I believe that there's something inside of us that's divine, if you will. Um, And that divinity kind of goes, when, when we perish, it goes back to, you know, the source. You could even say it's energy. We have energy and that energy doesn't dissipate. It just relocates. I'm curious to know your experience as um, a Hindu American, you know, being raised in America and then all of a sudden this explosion of yoga happening. Um, I'm curious how how that was for you. It's very interesting. Um, I I sometimes talk about this with my students (laughs) on my one-on-ones. My experience with uh, yoga in particular was very weird because my parents, when I was young, sent me to a Hindu camp because they didn't want me to like grow up not knowing anything about my background and where they came from and where, where they wanted me to go in life in terms of religion. And there was a yogi that came to this camp and they woke us up really early. I mean, I think I was like 10, maybe at most. Um, they woke up up really early and then the yogi gave us these like beads to hold on to and was like, okay, clear your brain, think of nothing. And when you're like a 10 year old and it's like 6 (laughs) a.m., you're not gonna do that. You're gonna fall asleep or you're just gonna like, your mind's gonna wander and you have no idea what you're doing. Um, (laughs) My experience with that was kind of a negative one, to be honest. Um, And then my experience with Hinduism, I mean, it's good and bad. It's not, you know, just like anything. They say, I have a teacher that says anything that has to do with India is both yes and no. Mm. And so, <laughs> the land of paradox. Right. It's the land of paradox. So I would say the same is true of my experience with Hinduism. Well, I do think that some of the tenets are great, especially the earlier ones. Um, I have a problem with some of the mythology and I feel like some of it is a little bit, you know, male oriented, mm. patriarchal. Yeah. I'm a feminist, so I have, <laughs> I have issues with that. So <laughs> Yeah. Totally. Which is why I kind of say, you know, I don't comment. I don't I don't think the people that believe in Hinduism or any other religion are bad, but it's not for me personally. Yeah. But in well, the yoga world, oh you asked me about the yoga world, sorry. Well, no, no, this is yeah. just how yeah, I mean this is all informing, you know, your experience of yoga, I'm sure it was really different than many of us who came to it. 
um, you know, like at the gym for the first time, for example. Yeah. Well, I, so it's funny you should say that. So yoga is kind of having a resurgence in India too. I think when I was growing up, yogis were kind of considered like these fringe people. They weren't part of mainstream. They aren't part of mainstream culture in India. Um, they're only now becoming that because of the resurgence in the West and Indians are sort of seeing this and kind of going, Hey, that's ours. <laughs> and kind of reclaiming it and like, you know, valuing it again because they see outsiders valuing it. Um, but my, my experience again with yoga came later in life and when I moved back to New York City. So this is, I'm re-encountering yoga in a different setting altogether. And it was very much in the setting of a studio. It was very physical. Um, but the Dharma talks, honestly, is what kind of helped me to see potential in myself and to grow on a spiritual level. So how in the heck do you see partnership and marriage as an extension of yoga? And um, what role did yoga play in your path to this realization? Okay, this is a deep one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so I somewhere along my practice, I came to understand that marriage is spiritual for a reason. And the reason that marriage is spiritual is because nobody stays the same after they get married. You're constantly changing and evolving as people. And the reason you get married is because you need someone there, or most people need someone there to help them in that journey of change. Because some of that change is really hard, really ugly. Um, and isn't it nice to have someone who loves you help you along? For me personally, I know that, you know, having a husband, we are so similar in a lot of ways that, and we get annoyed about the, the things that we do. Like if my husband does something that I do, it annoys me. And I'm like, oh, I'm annoying. And I need to change. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Like a mirror. Yeah, exactly. He's a mirror to me and I'm a mirror to him. And so we've learned to communicate in a way that is gentler over time. I mean, it, it took a lot of arguments to get there, but now we know how to communicate in a way that's gentler and nicer. And we can remind each other like, hey, you know that thing that um, annoys you about me? Like you kind of do that too. <laughs> <laughs> but I love you. <laughs> yeah. And is your partner a yogi? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I get, I mean, he does a little bit of physical practice with me. Very, I mean, it's a, it's a process. He's getting there, but he's not by any means a yogi. So these, um, you know, these lessons that you're, that you're talking about are these, you know, transformations that you go under. How do they relate in your experience to what happens on the yoga mat? And, um, and then I guess, you know, part B of this question is how does your experience on the yoga mat support, um, you being a kind, gentle, loving, compassionate mirror to, to your husband, whenever <laughs> you're really annoyed about something that he does that you also do too. <laughs> so, okay. I think that a lot of what happens on the yoga mat, especially if you're practicing at home on your own, is you start to delve into your habits, mm -hmm. um, your habits and your behaviors, right? So like, if you tend to like not want to pose, not, not like a pose rather, you may avoid it. 
And then you realize like after time, like I've been avoiding this. Post. <laughs> mm-hmm. I need to actually be in it and do it even though I don't like it. Or um, you start to notice like, hey, I keep doing this thing because, you know, I've just formed a bad habit. And then you need to start to change that habit. Well, it's the same thing in relationships. You do something out of habit or, you know, it was something you saw or learned poorly. Maybe it was like, for example, communication. Everyone talks about how important communication is in a relationship. Well, personally, I don't think I had anybody in my family to show me what great communication looks like. So my communication habits were really bad. And once I realized that it was a bad habit, just like the bad habits on my mat, I could realize that I had the power to change it. Mm. Right? Mm. <laughs> so, and, it, and that it takes practice and that it takes patience to change those behaviors. So I think that's where my yoga practice came in. I realized that I could practice and have patience with myself and with my partner. And then over time, we could change behaviors that weren't great for both of us. The word I'm thinking of is tapas, you know, like discipline <laughs> discipline, and the yeah. fire, you know, the fire that, that happens on our mat and standing in those, you know, being fully present in those moments that make us uncomfortable in those poses that make us uncomfortable for whatever reason that bring up a lot. And, um, you know, practicing them whenever you're on your mat in a really killer, you know, bashi stasana or arm balance. Um, is kind of like a practice for whenever you're in a moment in your relationship in which you're uncomfortable. When you're having a conversation that's uncomfortable um, or working something out together and you both kind of want to (laughs) flee, but you choose to stay in it. Um, Can you speak to that? that I definitely can. I mean, just you bringing up Vashi Sasana is really funny because when I first started yoga, that was like one of the hardest poses for me. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I, I absolutely used to hate doing it. And now can I tell you, it is one of my favorite poses. Wow. And I feel like so many people have that experience where something they started out hating in their yoga practice as they continue to practice yoga, they like now love that pose. <laughs> but it just speaks to the power of change. And when you stick with something and you do it, you work on it and you work on it and work on it, how it can completely change. For you. And I mean, the pose hasn't changed, right? I've changed. Whenever you talk, you talk about change and this, and that's a, that's a yogic concept too. You know, this idea of impermanence, mm-hmm. um, nothing is ever stagnant. You know, the only thing that's constant is change. And then of course the, the entity or the being or the presence that's observing and watching that change. And that's a very yogic concept. Yes. I mean that I, that's, if I had to say my number one tenant in life, it's that change is constant. And I know it's a little bit cliched, but I think it's so true. That's why it's cliched. Yeah. Well, I think we say that, you know, my, my mom used to always tell me that too growing up, but then it's like the yoga practice really cultivates our ability to stand in that change and be the presence that's observing the change and not identify with it and get caught up in the drama of the change, you know, um, yeah. for better or for worse. And then, and then eventually we become skillful enough to guide the change <laughs> in the direction that we want to go. Yeah, absolutely. And be, I would take that a step further. So I think 
it's easy to sit on the mat and sort of contemplate that change is constant and like notice the change physically in your body. I think it's harder to kind of um, take that into a relationship because even if we know that we ourselves are going to change, it's almost hard for us to understand that the people in our lives, whether it be our significant other or our parents or a sibling or a friend, also are going to change. Um, and in a, in a relationship like a marriage, right, you kind of, most people want to test it out, right? That's what, part, what, that's what dating is. It's testing it out to see if you're compatible, but you're never going to be the same people mm. that you are when you make the commitment. You're both going to start changing. <laughs> so the wow. Trick, right? <laughs> so the trick is how are you going to be able to be with this person even though they're going to change and you're going to change? And how are you going to change in a way that you can still continue to work together as a team? You know, as we're talking about change and we're talking about evolution, like my body is actually rocking <laughs> in, a, in a back and forth motion because I just keep getting this feeling of of motion as we're talking and evolution and constantly changing and and how partnership is committing to be together in that constant motion, constant change. So, you know, and then the word samskara comes forward, which we which I I think of samskara as like the grooves that are kind of grooved into our life with our habits. And um and it's very interesting because you talked about them as triggers. Yeah. Um so what is what does that mean to you? Um, so I learned this the hard way. <laughs> but, I mean, almost all of us in our life, uh, when we react to somebody, it's a trigger. So, like, if I do something, if I say something, right, that's irritating to you, you may react with, you know, uh, whatever, that's no big deal. Or you may have, like, a bad reaction to it. Or whatever way you react, right? It all has to do with how that strikes you emotionally. And the reason we have differences in how things strike us emotionally is because we have different pasts. Um, and I'm not even talking about past lives, which is like a different, <laughs> a different thing. Um, you know, that it's part of it. But it, if we're just talking about this lifetime, right? We all have different upbringings. We all have different experiences, and they all inform how we view the world around us. And then we form these like habits and in turn triggers um, based on those things. So if, if somebody annoys me and I'm reacting badly, that's because it's triggering something from my past and I have to learn, uncover what that thing is and then let that go. So can you talk about the moment that you first became aware of this? Um, this playing out in your life and the moment at which you recognize your agency or your power to um, to witness it and then change it or make a decision about how you were going to evolve through it. Can you talk about like maybe the, that moment that you that you had that understanding that I can I can not control but I can I have agency in this. I have agency in this process. There were several moments. <laughs> I will say the first, the first uh, significant moment for me happened when I was young. I was a very um, passionate little kid. 
And I think I always like wanted to fight for the justice of the world. <laughs> and it sort of <laughs> mm-hmm. off putting to others. It came off as like kind mm-hmm. of angry and aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then there came a day where I think I just was like, I'm not going to be like that anymore. And I just, I wasn't, I just stopped. And I think that was like the first time I experienced it, but I didn't really know what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happened again, like when I, I came to have health problems and that I, you know, uh, didn't know how to deal with and yoga sort of empowered me to take control of my health and realize like, oh, I could change my habits. I can change my lifestyle. And even though the doctors may not have all of the answers, like there are things I can do. I don't just have to rely on them. Um, And so for me, again, that was like the second time I learned that lesson of, well, I can, I can change my habits. I can change my behavior. And then I would say the third sort of big wave for me again was being getting married to my husband and then not communicating in the best way and not having arguments in the best way. And then in that instance, somebody else pointed out to me that what I was actually reacting to were things from my past. And that was a much harder, I think, transition for me because I think I've never gone quite that deep emotionally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think having my husband there to sort of, you know, guide me and help me through um, having agency in those issues was really a miracle for me because he was so patient and he, he would over and over again, you know, like you don't just get rid of your habits in one try. <laughs> right. Sometimes it takes lifetimes. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I'm not, they're still there. Like a lot of those bad behaviors that I would have, I have are still there. It's not like they're gone, but they're lessened because over time you sort of like start to understand, okay, wait, I'm starting to react to this and this is why. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with the situation or not necessarily everything to do with the situation. A lot of this is coming from my past experience that has hurt me. Mm-hmm. So that I think sometimes when we talk about being present in yoga, it's actually harder than it seems because you really have to know what your triggers are that are taking you out of the present. And so in your experience of seeing these triggers, once you see them, you know, then what? What is... Do you, what is your method of working through them of, um, of you know, dissol- ideally we dissolve them, you know, or yeah. they dissolve and lessen, but, um, do- I mean, recognizing them is like you're, you're 60 to 70% of the way there. <laughs> Once you see them, it starts to become more clear what you need to do about it. And then you kind of have a choice, right? You're going to give in to them, which is what your ego usually wants to do. Or you're going to say, I'm going to put my ego aside. And even though I don't like it, right, just like on the mat when you don't like being in that pose, even though I don't like it, I'm going to, I'm going to put that habit away. Or I'm going to, you know, some, for some people, like let's say it's apologizing. Some people can't apologize. It's very hard for them. Mm. So that's an ego war. It's almost like saying, okay, I'm going to acknowledge I did something wrong. And that's like 60, 70% of the battle, acknowledging that maybe you hurt someone's feelings and you did something wrong. And then apologizing is that path of like, okay, I'm going to set my ego aside to apologize and really take responsibility for what I did that hurt somebody else. And would you say that in partnership, um, 
this is kind of the most concentrated experience of this. You know, it happens within the container of a partnership or within the structure of a partnership. I mean, it's, yeah, I would probably say that because it's, being in a partnership is an intense experience, period, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to run. There's no, ch- you know, you can't just like run away from the problem. Yeah. You're being seen fully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ah. <laughs> and so in your partnership, would you say that was the first time that you felt like you were seen fully, like in all of your dimensions? Yeah, I think so. What was that experience like? Um, incredible. I mean, great and and awful at the same time. <laughs> right, <laughs> <A> because, paradox. <laughs> well, that person is seeing every single awesome, amazing thing that you do and hearing all the amazing things that you want to do and really truly seeing the generosity of your spirit. But then they're also seeing all the ugly things, the things that you don't want to acknowledge are there. And they, I mean, they might ignore them for you for a while if they can, (laughs) but then eventually there's going to come a place where you're both going to have to like come face to face with whatever those things are. So it's very intense. So you say that, you know, eventually you met your husband by letting go of fear Mm -hmm. and control and the constructs around this process, or I'm sorry, the constructs of your mind. Yeah. Letting go of fear, control, and the constructs of your mind. Can you talk about that process a little bit and what what does that mean? Okay. I will. (laughs) I'm going to, first off, I'll say this. I'll say that. I am a true believer that once you take a step in the right direction in your life, if you're feeling stuck, that the universe will truly step in and help you on your way to realizing your goal. Um, But you have to take the first step, and that first step is usually the hardest. Mm -hmm. Terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. In my life, that step was, was letting go of my idea of the future. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I had this like idea. I want this type of person. I want to do this type of thing. Um, and the very first step for me was letting, letting go of all of that. And it was a lot of changes at once, but one of them was being open to dating whoever asked me um, because I don't think I was open to it before. Hmm. Yeah. Why not? Why not do you think? I don't know why not to be honest. I haven't really delved into that. <laughs> All I know is that I woke up one day and I was like, all right, I'm just going to, whoever asked me, I'm just going to, I'm going to go on a date with and it's going to be okay. <laughs> and then the second big step for me was I, I knew I was not happy in my job, but I had this like intense fear of like quitting my job and having to move back home with my parents. But I did exactly that. I quit my job and I got my yoga certification and I moved back home with my parents and I did the thing that scared me the most. Mm-hmm. Those two things sort of led me on this path of like actually being able to come back to New York, have a career here, meet the man I was going to marry and actually like make that commitment. 
if I hadn't done those things, I wouldn't, I would not be here living. I mean, I mean, my dream was to teach yoga in New York and that's, I'm living the dream. Wow. But you had to let it go first. I had to let it go first. <laughs> was it terrifying? It was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did the thing that scared me the most, which was quitting my job, <laughs> quitting my like, I mean, I didn't have, I wasn't making a lot of money. I didn't have um, a savings in New York. I was literally living paycheck to paycheck doing this job that I didn't like. But what scared me even worse than that was quitting it and moving back in with my parents. But I did it. <laughs> Worth. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But you did it and you lived to tell about it. <laughs> I lived to tell about it. And it wasn't for forever, you know? It was like a year and then I got to come right back here. I met the man that brought me right back here. And so what was the moment that you realized that you wanted to marry this person? It was a series of moments, but it happened very fast. So it's honestly, it's a blur. We had a little bit of a whirlwind romance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we started dating and within, within four to five months, we were engaged. So it happened very quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think. It was just, I'd never felt that way about anybody before. I never felt like we just like knew each other so well, right from the get-go. And you gave up being a monk or a nun. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was going to be a monk. <laughs> I thought I was going to go live in some ashram somewhere in the middle of nowhere and find enlightenment. And I think that's the, where I came to that understanding of, wait, marriage is about enlightenment. It's not, you know about staying the same. It's actually about change and it's about supported change. So what is it in your marriage that you're finding that you, that you could also be finding in an ashram? You know, a lot of times people go to ashrams to, you know, to live the life of a renunciant, to, to renounce, you know, household responsibilities and children and, you know, living and working in the world and they renounce all of that to go and have that experience of oneness that you were talking about, um, you know, returning to the soul or Atman. And um, would you say that you have that experience in your marriage? Um, you know, obviously not sustained for like eight hours a day. <laughs> I mean, possibly, you know, is it okay. something that can be sustained in a life, do you think, in a householder's life? I don't think that the experiences are the same at all, but I will say that there is one aspect that is towards the same goal, which is understanding the differences between people are superficial. Um, and so in a marriage, you're understanding that between you and your partner, that the differences you have are actually superficial and not, not real and sort of like an existence of your imagination that you've created. The more I am sympathetic and empathetic towards my partner, the happier we both are and vice versa, right? Because if I can understand his experience, I understand, oh, it's really, it, he's the same as me. Like we have fear and doubt and, you know, great habits and bad habits and good things and bad things. And we're not all that different. Mm. So you begin to understand the constructs, like the mental and kind of illusory constructs that make right. up a worldview. Little by little. But I think, and I think uh, I might be misquoting this. I'm definitely going to misquote this, but I think this quote is attributed to Dharma Mitra, where he says something along the lines of, um, anybody can become a yogi in a mountain, but it takes a lot more to become a yogi living in the middle of New York City. 
Um, <laughs> which is kind of like what it is to be a householder these days and to be a yogi. It's, it's a lot harder actually, because you don't get that concentration of like letting go of social constructs and um, the responsibilities that come along with all of those things of being a householder and like still having to make money. A traditional yogi was funded by donation in a community that believed that what they were doing was valuable. Um, so they didn't have to worry about making money and they had, they could shed all of their possessions because they had no one to provide for, no responsibilities, no rent to pay. Whereas as a householder yogi, there's, you still have all those responsibilities, but you're still trying to find that elusive enlightenment, right? On some level. Do you think that we're all looking for it on like on a very subconscious level? Do you think that all of us are seeking it? I don't know if everyone's seeking it, but I think most people who become yoga teachers are seeking it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to speak for everyone. I think some people spend their whole lives trying to maintain exactly the relationship they had when they met somebody or Mm. living in the past and not realizing it or being anxious of the future and not knowing it. And then some people are able to be present and able to understand that they're there to change and evolve. what moment did you realize that, you know, that wasn't your purpose, that your purpose was to actually choose to stay in this world and be a householder and, you know, kind of dance that dance with one foot in the spiritual realm and one foot in the really tangible New York city realm. Yeah. It was uh, honestly, and like, I, this is going to sound cheesy, but it was the moment that I fell in love with my husband. Aww. <laughs> yeah. It's so cheesy. I know. People out there are going to be gagging, but <laughs> no, it really was because I never experienced love like that before. And I, um, mm. I knew that it was not something you just kind of ignored or decide not to pursue. Well, I'm thinking of like, you know, all the renunciates that do go off to the ashrams and they have that moment where they, you know, kind of have that connection to source. Like it is, it's, it's like that, you know, when I listen to meditators talk, you know, people with a lifetime meditation practices, um, you know, from what I understand that connection to source often feels like a connection to unconditional love, you know? Right. And so if you experience that in a partner, then it's like, hello. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, again, like I, like I said, I think life is all about change. And I don't think that that moment of like me becoming a nun or monk is like never going to happen. Maybe it'll happen in the future. But I think in that moment of my life, I realized, no, I need to experience this right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And then maybe that renunciate path will come later in some way or another. Mm -hmm. 
I love um, that. Yeah. How did you experience this right now? And, you know, we often get hung up on the language of marriage being this lifetime commitment. But I love that, you know, you said, I need to experience this right now. And then you make the decision to marry. And, you know, I don't get the impression from talking to you that you're like sitting around waiting for your divorce to happen, you know? <laughs> no, not at all. Your language is very present and in the now. And yet I still get the feeling that there is you have a reverence and understanding of the the commitment and the, you know, the lifetime practice that it is. I definitely think that the commitment I made is for a lifetime as far as I can foresee and as far as my husband can foresee. But at the same time, the nature of things is to change. And I'm not saying like, right. We're going to get divorced. (laughs) Not saying that at all. I'm also not saying like, you know, I was, I kind of joke about this to my husband. He hates it. (laughs) Sorry, husband. Yeah, something could happen to one of us, and we don't know. Like, we don't know what life holds. God forbid one of us passes along before our time, but that could be a possibility. Right. And in that situation, like, yeah, maybe then I would become a renunciate if he were to go before me. But, again, I'm not holding my breath for that option either. Right. <laughs> right. And as we know, things don't happen if you hold on to them. If you Right. You know. So – it still happens when you let go. Yeah, I live my life you know, like thinking, okay, this is a choice I've made and this is where what I need to experience and this is what it's going to be like and I've made this commitment for my lifetime. But should something unforeseen happen, I can't, I can't just rule out the possibility that like my life could change or that it would be different in some way. So I want to talk, I kind of want to expand this a little bit. You know, we've gotten really specific with your life and thank you so much for being so transparent and open about all of this. I'm, I'm loving this conversation. So thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, let's, so we've talked, we've thrown around the millennial word yeah. <laughs> and I do, I kind of want to wrap it up with zooming back in a little bit and um, talking about the specific practices that you and your husband incorporate into your, into your partnership. But before we wrap it up with that, I kind of want to zoom out really broadly and just kind of take this moment to talk about like what it is that millennials think about marriage and like why we have these viewpoints. Um, you had some ideas around that about, you know, like what images and um, role models that we have about marriage growing up and like how did that shape our understanding of it and did that make us excited or did that make us a little bit reluctant and hesitant around marriage? What do you think? Um, I don't have an answer to that, but I do have some ideas. <laughs> right? Let me hear up. <laughs> so I think that in our generation, we've sort of seen more people waiting longer to get married in their life, um, getting married later. And I think that's okay. There's nothing bad about that. Um, but I think that there is this idea, a couple of ideas holding us back in general. And one of them is fear of making the wrong choice. Um, and I think I've outlined a few of these, so I'm just going to kind of go through them. Um, fear of making the wrong choice. I think a lot of people I know personally were raised by parents who are divorced and like are scared. They don't want to be divorced. They don't want to make the same decision that their parents made to separate, especially after having kids. They take a little longer to make a decision or to settle down. Um, I also think that like gender roles are a really big issue that we are nowhere near solving (laughs) that really do hold us back from committing to each other because in any marriage, I mean, it's hard for, for women like to think about, well, 
am I going to choose like to be a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home wife? Where am I going to work? Um, and then at what point of me working and then maybe deciding to have kids, am I going to, you know, how am I going to negotiate this? Um, and there's really no win-win situation, unfortunately. Um, women who work tend to feel like they're not doing great at home or at work. Um, and then women who choose kind of feel like they're missing out on one aspect. I think for men, it's also a big issue. I think men struggle with wanting to spend more time at home. I don't think society sort of, and corporations especially support men taking time off for their kids when more and more men our age do want to do that. Um, Mm. I I definitely think men our age want to be great fathers and want to be home and they're, you know, but they still have to provide and and jobs aren't as flexible for them. The job is less understanding of a guy who wants to work part-time to spend time with his kids. Um, I also think that we're facing like the paradox of choice, which if anyone has like watched the Ted talk on it, if you haven't, I highly recommend you do. There's a whole, this whole idea of like more choices actually leave us less satisfied with the decisions that we, that we make because we always feel like there's something better out there. How does yoga help you compromise? How does yoga help me compromise? Honestly, I think the more, the happier I make myself, the less I feel bad about my partner taking time to do whatever it is he needs to do. Mm-hmm. Because I'm making, I'm understanding and making myself happy. I'm, I'm understanding that happiness comes from within. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I don't need to rely on him to make me happy. And it's not that like we don't need to spend time together because of course we do, but the amount of time we need to spend together or the, you know, it's more about the quality of experiences rather than the amount of time we spend together. Intention, like intentional experiences. Right. And not spending all of your time together, you know, kind of, but not really being together, not really being present together. Yeah. Yeah. If I didn't have yoga in my life, I don't think that idea, personally for me, I don't think the idea of happiness coming from within would have really settled for me. I don't think I really would have understood it. And part of it is because I did like a meditation, I did a Vipassana meditation course. Like mm-hmm. I've done a few of them, but I, the big one I did was a couple years ago. Um, and in that course, I sort of like experienced for the first time what true happiness feels like I'm sure on a very baby level because you know what I've been meditating a week not a lifetime (laughs) (laughs) but like you know for that like one day that I felt like super happy I was like oh wow like this is like physically feels different I emotionally feel different I mentally feel different and then you go back to real life but you still hold on to this idea of like wow that's what self-fulfillment feels like and I know I can attain it and thank goodness for yoga because it gives you uh, accessible tools, you know, very user-friendly tools to access to accessing that happiness. You know, like there are guided meditations and asana practices that are specifically handed down by teachers to help you access it and experience that level of happiness that you cultivate on your own. Exactly. And so, you are no longer needing to walk around with your, um, you know, with your palms cupped, like in every encounter that you have and every interaction that you have with, with others, you kind of walk through life with a posture of being fulfilled instead of a posture of needing right, and seeking. And I mean, I think especially going back to relationships, like I think especially 
there's this idea that like, oh, my partner's supposed to complete me. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. <laughs> I think the best relationships I've seen are the ones in which the two people are very self-fulfilling um, and that they just act as a, as a partnership, but they don't really like rely on each other for validation and, and um, happiness like on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-to-moment basis even. I agree. I so agree. And I also think that what you're saying speaks so powerfully to the importance of having a personal practice of some sort. Um, I think that when those two individuals that you speak of, you know, that ideally come together in this um, commitment of partnership, when each of those individuals have their own um, practice of some sort, whether that's a contemplative practice or a creative practice, yoga, um, writing, painting, you know, even a, a physical practice, like um, a hobby of some sort that really inspires them and challenges them and also fulfills them and teaches them to show up for themselves every day. I think that that is really super powerful too. So thank you, Jaisal, for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure and a joy to hear your story from the early days of Hindu camp <laughs> to um, now being a yoga teacher in modern day New York City. And um, congratulations on your partnership. And it was, it was lovely to hear your perspective. Thanks for having me. If this conversation has been inspiring to you, you can connect with Jaisal at yogawallanyc.com. That's Y-O-G-A-W-A-L-L-A-N-Y-C dot com. Thank you so much for listening to Soul Sutras, where we talk with folks about the gritty and mystical threads that helps them uncover what it is they stand for. The music today was by Scott Holmes, Greatest Lakes, and Kala. If you have a story or a topic that you would like to dig into, please give us an email at soulsutraspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much. Looking forward to hearing from you. Until next time, namaste. Namaste.